We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Behind the Headlines on the Sod Radio Network, the world for people who think. Hello and welcome to Behind the Headlines, a new show name for this uh, regular Sunday Sat Radio Network show. I'm Neil Bradley, my co-host as usual, Joe Quinn. Hi there. And joining us again, Juliana Barnbuem. Hello. Editor at Sotnet. So, in case anyone is not aware, we are now doing a second show, not I should say, rather, there's going to be a second show every Saturday on a newly called SOT Radio Network. Uh, its maiden broadcast was yesterday, and it's now archived, as usual, in the same location on the SOTnet Block Talk Radio page. So this will be a weekly Saturday show uh, to run in parallel with our regular Sunday show. Difference being... There's going to be a separate crew. The host will be Sotnet editor Harrison Keeley and some of his people who are also Sotnet editors and they're going to be doing a regular weekly Saturday show so make sure you tune in and check them out. Whereas we're going to be behind the headlines going forwards, they're going to be doing the Truth Perspective show. Yes, exactly. It's uh, we're just expanding, um, expanding our operation a little bit, and we plan to have other shows um, on our network um, in coming weeks on different topics, maybe on specific topics um, uh, like health and um, maybe health, diet, uh, psychology. You know, all that kind of stuff, all the good stuff and the bad stuff. So, um, yeah, look out for some some new shows coming your way with new and exciting guests and hosts, of course. Yeah, there could even be new new shows in different languages in sometime in the new year. We've already started with the Spanish right. uh, radio show, but it's not being broadcasted yet on Blog Talk Radio, but we're working on it. And if any listener has any ideas, any things they'd like to listeners talk to us talk about, or, you know, fun ideas for shows and, and guests, feel free to uh, post them on the chat and we'll, we'll make it happen. Great. Well, for the last couple of weeks on uh, this show, we've interviewed some guests about very interesting things, but it's good to get back this week to looking at what's going on out there, deconstructing some of the unbelievable lies we're told every day about what it is we're supposed to be seeing, whether it's political developments, scientific developments, just even the weather. You'd think something as simple as reporting the weather would be easy to tell you, 
But no, they neglect to tell you certain things about it. And as a result, people are misinformed about the most simple things. So to get us started this week, um, I've thought the big, big news recently would have to be this uh, switcheroo in Pipelinistan, as Pepe Escobar calls it. So for some decade now, the European Union has been negotiating with Russia to build an alternative South Stream pipeline as opposed to the existing North Stream pipeline and transport Russian gas and meet some third of Europe's energy supply. And the Europeans have a funny way of doing business. They denigrated it at every turn and made it very difficult for it to go through. Obstacles here, there, and everywhere. They claim that Russia failed to meet its own rules, namely that as the owner of the gas being supplied to to Europe, Russia could not also be majority owner of the actual pipeline structure. But that's not really what's going on here. This goes back to the 90s, and it actually has no surprise. Same old energy issues that can go back to earlier decades. What's really going on is that the European lease, as much as the US, let's say, are adamant, well, they're upset at first. They're upset that Russia's gas is state-owned. They wanted the gas to be privately owned, in other words, to be available on the market for purchase so that their own oligarchs in the West could purchase ownership rights to the gas and in that way access Russian gas. So they're not happy with the way the Russians do business, which is they keep things they don't. That's the real gripe. All this other stuff about, oh, but Russia's... Uh, Russia annexed you Crimea and therefore on principle we are no, that's just nonsense that's just for mass consumption what they're really griping about is that they don't own the actual ownership of Russia's gas so Putin called a bluff okay, if you really, really don't want to do a trade deal with us fine, he pulled the plug on it I think they were actually surprised by it you would think after 10 years of not really wanting to make the trade deal, they would just let it go. But this came as a shock because Europe thought it had a good thing going because it has this wedge, this, 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 uh, this card over Moscow. But Moscow just cashes in because it knows that really it has the card over Europe. So, it was quite a shock because not only did Russia just announce that South Stream is cancelled, they only did, they only did it having secured an alternative route or and trade uh, gas deal with Turkey. And go, oh, but the the first thing is that uh, Turkey. Well, once you're in Turkey, you're you're looking at Syria. And the Middle East, and the, there's a lot more going on here, I think, than just um, 
Russia making Turkey is, is technically it's at a war, it's having basically involved in a war with this, this neighbor and uh, the neighbor is an ally of Russia if it weren't for Russia last year um, Syria would by now have been carpet bombed it would have had the Iraq treatment. And so you have a very interesting situation where a country that's similar to Ukraine, actually, in the sense that its geography places it at the midway point between East and West, this country has switched its compass, if you like, to the East, to Russia. And I think before long we could see could be a uh, kind of domino effect where a whole string of other trade deals with other countries um, in the Caucasus, in the region, uh, the Caucasus and then further south into the Middle East are doing a similar kind of swinging of their, their compass towards Moscow and away from the West. Uh, we're not there yet, but as somebody wrote... Um, a recent thought article, I think it's a Mercurius. He's a London journalist, and he said everything else before this this year was relatively weak. This single action alone, the $45 billion worth gas deal going to Turkey instead of to Europe, is the single biggest sanction between all parties so far this year. All the others have a lesser value to either Europe or to Russia than this one. So, mm-hmm. I'm, but, I'm like, bring it on. What's well, next? Let me ask you something, because at reading this, the, the news about Turkey and, um, and this new deal with Russia, I mean, economically speaking, you can see it's very sound for Russia because it's actually they're going to get to sell more gas than they would have. And Europe's southern, the southern um, European countries are going to suffer for it, as I understand. But that's that's the economical part. But then, just weeks ago, we kept hearing uh, reports of um, Turkey, ISIS, you know, sending ISIS to Syria, Turkey, you know. I mean, what is the role of Turkey in all of this? That's what I'm trying to get at. And is it shifting? Are we seeing a shift, uh, a major shift in um, allies here? Because... On the one hand, you get this supposed enemy. At the same time, Turkey is being rejected by the European Union or, you know, prevented from joining, etc. This could be like, well, you don't want me. I'll go on the other side. But at the same time as this happened, we saw Bashar al-Assad talking. I think it was for the first time this year. He had been completely silent. And there was another, I think he was the secretary of, Uh, I can't remember what her role is, but um, um, Assad said very direct, made very direct claims, you know, and assertions. And he's right in what he said. He he said that, you know, terrorism in Syria is sponsored by the U.S. pretty much. And to me, it was um, kind of impressive that he finally would have a voice at the same time as Russia is talking 
with Syria, and Russia is going to be this mediator between the Syrian government and the opposition. I mean, there's all these things going on, and suddenly it seems like Syria suddenly got a voice finally. I kept waiting, you know, for for Assad to say something. Does the Turkish thing have something to do with that, you think? Uh, well, part of the problem is that someone like Assad has so little uh, reception. We don't hear what's going on in Syria from his perspective. We don't get, he doesn't get a platform. He did earlier on where this began. He was being interviewed on CNN and other Western media and his, what his statements were being reported. But I did one of the same things. You're like, where does Assad stand since ISIS blew up in June this year? What, what, what does he have to say? And you have to dig. And, but you find that, uh, he has said, we gave no permission for U.S. airstrikes in our country. We regard this as an infringement on our sovereignty. But uh, they can just ignore him, basically. Um, where does he stand on this? Well, you see, Turkey Turkey is up to its neck in in what's going on in Syria. It's, it's not as clear-cut as Turkey is now with us or against us. As a NATO member, to join NATO, once you sign the papers and say you're, they say you're in NATO... That's just a formality. There's a whole process that goes back years before that, even decades. A bit like joining the EU, in fact, where similar to if you accept an IMF loan, you need to make structural conditionalities. Well, in that, when it comes to the financial world, it's a lot more. It's just abstract. You change your books. You change the way you do business. But when it comes to NATO, it means that we have a, a pretty much, let's call him a NATO expert on our show, the guy who does the Stop NATO website, his name escapes me. Anyway, he's, he's like, he knows all the ins and outs of NATO and how it works. They spend about 10 years literally changing the infrastructure of a country to make it technologically compatible with Western, particularly U.S. arms manufacturers. What do I mean by that? The country will have a security system, including their computer networks, they all need to be remodeled, rebuilt, and integrated with the NATO structure, you know? Mm-hmm. So by the time you sign, you're literally inside an interlocking web. And how easy is that to control from elsewhere, right? So you're in it. Turkey is in this position where <laughs> if they were serious about breaking from NATO, for example, they would have a seriously steep hill to climb. Because it's far easier to, for someone from the outside, from somewhere else within that integrated network, to take control of it. Because they know all about it because they gave it to you. You know? And that's just, I'm just talking about technology there. Then there's people. Um, Turkey's current government is elected, yes. But I think the last two coup d'etat in Turkey, in the 80s and early 90s, I think were both essentially take over by the military, guys who were trained at like West Point in the US. They're US military people. Just like on the NGO level in Ukraine, there's certain people who have power now would have been trained in George Soros universities as kids or teenagers or whatever, and then got their masters in some other institution and then they worked in a Western bank and next thing you know they're back in Kiev 
oh yeah, they're key, they're Ukrainian nationals in quotes, but they're complete products of a system that is trying to control the country. The so Turkey is very, very deep in this. Um, and I, I suspect it's in for some serious trouble. Last year when there were protests throughout Turkey, uh, the the spark that set off mass demonstrations in Turkey, and it was called, same kind of theme, Occupy, Occupy Gezi Park or something in Istanbul. Um, I was supporting the protests because, uh, well, like everyone else, I assume there was injustice. And uh, there isn't. There's injustice everywhere at Turkey too. But as, um, their then Prime Minister Erdogan said something that made me go, hang on a minute. He said these protests are being funded from abroad. They're being coordinated from abroad. And he cited, he said, just like he didn't say Syria, because he could have, because they would have had natural reasons to, you know, have a common point of a common cause there. He said, just like in Brazil. Hmm. And there's a good reason, I think, now for suspecting that they were whooped, whipped up those mass demonstrations in, in Brazil. So, um, I think uh, Turkey is it's it's uh, it's made a bold move, maybe in terms of acting. Just if you think of pure interests of a country, it makes more sense to make this move. It may it may actually be trying also to de-escalate from this this involvement in Syria. Um, very hard to tell. They did issue a statement recently about two weeks ago saying they have in the last two months stopped over 7,000 people mainly from they said France and Belgium. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what? From trying to enter Syria via Turkey. And there were also other reports of like Austrian, Swedish, even American teenagers and 20-somethings being stopped by the Turks and sent home. But then you have Biden's, Joe Biden and other politicos in the US and Europe making kind of noises that suggest that they're not happy with the way Turkey is, quote, dealing with the ISIS situation, that it may actually be trying to actually deal with it. They're not supposed to do that. They're supposed to facilitate it, pretend in public that they're dealing with it, well, actually, it's a cover for other things like removing Assad. So, so it's, it's going to be interesting to which there. way it goes because it's on one hand you're saying basically, you know, we can consider Turkey as a U.S. puppet, but on the other hand, is it making its own decisions now? Is it purely economical? Is it because they don't want to be used as a scapegoat later on? I mean, you got a political thing going on and and almost an opposite one, economically speaking. And then this thing where, well, are they helping ISIS? Are they not? Are they controlling it? Are they not? They're like they're like any other. That let's just let's assume they can see to some extent what we're seeing, or or to, maybe they see more. I mean, maybe they're smart and to see the writing on the wall. Uh, with respect to Ukraine, which is not far from them. Um, 
at the at the level of basic economics, it's just it was too tempting because you see Turkey doesn't just already sixty percent of Turkey's gas needs are supplied from Russia. I think so, fifty or sixty. It's not that they needed more energy. What was the, the what was a really nice bait for Turkey in this is that the Russians said, "Okay, we just send the pipeline to you, and forget all this complicated trying to then." split the pipeline between small different Balkan and European countries we do business with Turkey it's easy we just send the pipeline to you and then you do with what you will and there's a suggestion which is also rife with interesting possibilities that the Turks on their border with Greece somewhere will build a kind of terminal a hub or a point of sale basically with which to supply Mediterranean countries in the EU well, that's that's obviously the plan. Like, I mean, there's no point in the point in putting a, a pipeline through Turkey, as you just said. Turkey doesn't need uh, a lot of gas from Russia, so the point is to route it through uh, Turkey as opposed to under the Black Sea and into Bulgaria, and then continue land-based pipelines through uh, Eastern Europe and into Western Europe. Uh, the alternative, since um, since the EU, since the EU has been uh, acting like such a bunch of idiots at the behest of the US over the sanctions on Russia and putting pressure on Bulgaria, which was the the first port, the first landfall after the Black Sea for this pipeline, putting pressure on Bulgaria not to go ahead with the with the plan, uh, the, US, the Russia just said, okay, we'll we'll uh, we'll. Do the same thing essentially, at, um, uh, because the bottom line is that uh, this pipeline was planned long ago uh, based on the need for Russian gas uh, in Eastern European countries. That need hasn't gone away. Um, so the idea now is that the pipeline will simply uh, go through Turkey and be. Uh, Go to the, the Mediterranean coast of Turkey, uh, at which point it will be shipped. Will be not shipped. It will be made available uh, to uh, European countries via 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 boat. Um, so it's you know it's 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 calling their bluff essentially. You know because uh, it's kind of like a ridiculous situation in terms of it's so short sighted um, that they couldn't that the EU and their US taskmasters couldn't have seen. That uh, Russia would do this, you know, um, because um, you know the idea was the EU said no, we're going to stop you, we're going to stop your South Stream, we're going to put pressure on Bulgaria and other European nations, Eastern European nations to to stop this process, this Russian process, because Russia needs to sell its gas uh, and it's, it needs to use European countries to transit that gas to sell the gas to European countries. And therefore, uh, we have control over it. And it's all about control, essentially. That's what, like Neil was saying earlier on, that's what uh, is pissing off not just the EU, but mainly the US, that Russian gas is Russian and is sold primarily for uh, profits that go to the Russian state and the Russian people. Um, so they just called their bluff and said, okay, you know, you don't want it run, running through your countries. We'll, we'll do a deal with Turkey and run through Turkey and then we'll just make it available at the coast of Turkey, which is, you know, in the Mediterranean, 
and uh, and anybody who wants it can buy it from there. Uh, I.e., none of you will be getting none of your Eastern European countries in the EU, Bulgaria, uh, etc. None of you will be getting the transit um, money or transit payments, profits from from allowing or having the pipeline over your country, and uh, you'll have no control over it essentially, and you'll have to buy it at whatever price we decide you're going to buy it at, you know, um, at market price. Obviously, Russia has to set a fair price to, to make it, uh, to, to make people buy it. But, um, but then Turkey is entitled to make a profit too. <clears throat> well, Turkey so gets the transit profits essentially and uh, it, it cements a strategic partnership with uh, or, or increases the kind of partnership between Russia and Turkey much more, which is very, uh, you know, Turkey's a NATO country. Turkey isn't a part of the EU, and part of the reason I think that Turkey went ahead and did this was because there's a lot of bad feeling uh, in Turkey, and there has been bad feeling for a long time in Turkey, at least at the political level, and also to, to whatever extent amongst the population, there's a bad feeling towards the EU uh, because Turkey has been a member, uh, has been a potential member uh, of the EU for 50 years, and they've delayed it and delayed it and delayed it, and it's still not an EU member. You know, it has various, it has kind of like associate status or whatever, but uh, the EU has repeatedly kind of put off Turkish membership of the EU. But do you and think that um, Turkey did this partly because this will make them more interesting to the EU, EU no. or, a, or more of a you know plausible candidate? The fact that their economy will do better or they actually depend on Turkey, they can more easily strike deals and whatever. No, it's basically Turkey saying that, you know, they're they're tired of waiting and they're not interested and they understand that the EU is fundamentally a, a, a kind of white Caucasian elitist uh, entity uh, like the USA. And that uh, the main reason that they don't want Turkey to be a part of the EU is because Turkey is full of Muslims, a uh, hundred and some million of them, I think. Um, so Turkey is very much from the, from a, from an elitist Western Western European and U.S. perspective. Turkey is effectively the Middle East, and it's full of Muslims. It's no different from Syria or any other country in the Middle East, uh, and it's not worthy, therefore, to be a part of the EU. And there's all sorts of you know all sorts of cultural and obviously religious and demographic problems that uh, bureaucrats in the EU foresee uh, in terms of Turkey ever being a major part of um, or being an actual part of the EU. And, of course, that's ignoring the fact that there are millions of uh, Turkish people working in the EU. They're allowed to come and work in the EU uh, and, you know, work as kind of slaves, effectively, in the EU. Um, but Turkey, they will, not, they will not, the EU bureaucracy will not uh, allow uh, full Turkish membership of the EU for, for essentially racist reasons. Um, And Turkey has been waiting, like I said, for 50 years for that to happen. And they've given up waiting. And they said, I mean, Erdogan, I think, has mentioned that previously in, in recent years, that he wasn't interested in, he's only going to wait so long. And obviously the geopolitical kind of um, chessboard is changing right now. And that's not working in favor of, of the West, or of the, the EU or the US, because Russia is reasserting itself and establishing Uh, very definite economic uh, relationships with countries in its sphere of influence and it's asserting its rights to, to have those relationships as we've seen in Ukraine and uh, in other uh, in Caucasus regions and in also in, in, in Eastern European regions in Moldova 
and and now Turkey, you know, Turkey is effectively in Russia's uh, backyard. Uh, I mean, part of Russia now is, uh, is uh, Crimea is now part of Russia, and it's you know it, it's about uh, I don't know it's probably two or three hundred kilometers across the Black Sea, and you're in Turkey, so it's effectively you know on Russia's doorstep. So Turkey, um, Turkey is a Russian. You know, partner essentially, uh, naturally a Russian partner, especially in the context of the EU dissing them for so long. Soon to be Chinese partner too, because they're about to join the Shanghai Cooperation Organization too. Mm-hmm. Oh, Turkey. Turkey, yeah. About to. Well, to what yeah. extent? I've heard. Um, uh, from what I've read in one of our articles, it says it's on the verge of becoming a full member. Wow. Okay. So. So that's, it's, um, that's pretty big. Well, that could be. That, I mean, uh, just just to explain it, the SEO, the Chinese Cooperation Agreement, from statements by Russians and Chinese, they foresee the SEO headquartered in Shanghai as being the future mm-hmm. New York. By that, I mean it would be the future headquarters of any world UN body. Well, it was in, it's interesting to see how the um, how this was spun. You know, I mean, there, there's very muted muted response from um, European or sorry fuck the EU central in Brussels about the Joseph that's that's not my word that's a quote. oh yes yes you're, that's a quote I'm quoting the the, the honourable uh, Victoria Newland of the US State Department um, they didn't say very much about it obviously they were it seems they were kind of shocked to some extent, by Russia just saying, okay, South Stream, well, we don't want to go through Bulgaria anyway, we're going to use Turkey. And um, But Eastern European countries, Bulgaria in particular, and other Balkan states who were going to profit from this pipeline were quite angry about it, and they did not know anything about it. They were not consulted beforehand. Uh, Russia just announced it unilaterally, so it was a surprise for everybody. Of course, when you can look then at the response in the U.S. The U.S. has uh, lots of crowing and gloating by different people, John McCain included, uh, saying that this was a blow to Russia and Russia had been set back and blah, blah, blah. So they were, and, and that's, uh, it's very interesting that when you just compare those two reactions to it, you know, the European reaction muted or angry and the U.S. reaction gloated, gloating and uh, crowing about this and seeing it as a, as a blow or a setback, an economic yeah. setback for Russia, whereas people in the EU tend to see it as an economic setback for them. So the US, this just re reconfirms what's actually going on here, which is that the US has no real, um, it has no, uh, it's not exposed in any way, let's say, by anything that it is forcing and manipulating and blackmailing European countries to do in terms of sanctions against Russia. All of the pain is being felt in the EU, uh, at the behest of the U.S., which feels no pain, effectively, from any sanctions. And it's just amazing that, um, that <laughs> I mean, we've tried to talk about it before, and I think uh, when you say blackmail, you say a lot uh, about why this bizarre, irrational situation uh, continues to play out, where the EU appears to just enjoy shooting itself in the foot and destroying effectively slowly destroying uh, European economies and ultimately impoverishing European peoples simply to fulfill some kind of a bizarre ideological agenda where it's like 
you know, no, we're anti-Russian, therefore Russia's not allowed to do anything. We're not doing business with Russia. We're not playing ball with Russia. We're not doing anything with Russia. Russia's evil. And uh, if we have to shoot ourselves in the foot and the face and the leg or whatever, any other body part, uh, we will do that just to fulfill our irrational, bloody-minded hatred of Russia. That doesn't make sense. Obviously, these people are interested in remaining, people in the EU are interested in maintaining their positions of power over the people and they like the economies to be strong, etc., uh, because they get more money as a result of that. So, um, And they get the same power. So why would they be doing that? Well, like I said, blackmail must be playing a major part in it because it's all being directed from Washington. Washington has nothing to lose and everything to gain. And it doesn't even care, essentially, if it destroys, if by its uh, manipulation and blackmail of European leaders, if it destroys European economies, uh, it's all to the good, as, as far as they're concerned, as long as Russia suffers. Cause, so that's where the bizarre, ridiculous, irrational, ideological uh, drive, essentially, to do all of this comes from. It comes from Washington. And it can just go ahead and do that because it doesn't suffer. You know, usually if you run around cutting off your nose to spite your face and shooting yourself in the foot, usually you say, okay, I, I'm not going to do this anymore. It's hurting me more than, or as much as it's hurting anybody else or more than it's hurting anybody else. Uh, so you stop. But you don't see that unless you see it amongst mad people, you know, but not supposedly sane or rational people. Uh, but we see it happening in, in, in Europe, but it's actually happening from Washington. And they can do that because they don't suffer as a result of it. But the EU does. There's also a split, right? Because I haven't looked at the map, but the North Stream um, basically makes it so that, say, Brussels doesn't is not affected by it, right? Well, it's going to be the Southern and the Mediterranean most affected, and then Northern Europe will be pretty safe. I, the guys in Belgium, and well, North Stream goes to uh, Germany. Um, effectively, that was that was a pipeline that was agreed. Uh, a few years, several years ago, uh, between the Germans and the Russians, when everything was a bit uh, rosier and relationships were were better, uh, and but Germany obviously is the the powerhouse of the EU, and I mean it's all it's at a European EU bureaucratic level where supposedly they're they're responsible for these uh, EU countries. So just because Germany may be okay to some extent uh, for gas supplies, um, it can't just has to put up a show of being concerned for all of its little children mm. within the EU. Yeah. Joe, I mean, Joe's right. At the end of the day, Brussels is really uh, uh, just like a, a messenger boy, an errand boy for Washington. I mean, you get a glimpse of this when John Idiot McCain gets on the phone to Brussels in June and says... I want you to tell, literally, this is what happened. I want you to tell your man in Bulgaria that South Stream is not going ahead in this country. And then they did make a statement promptly the next day. The Bulgarian government said it would not happen. Now, at some point, reality hit them between then and recently. And Bulgarians went, well, maybe we'll still work on it. So went back into this mumbling 10-year process of maybe, maybe, maybe. But all it took was McCain to get on the phone and somebody then made a statement on behalf of the Bulgarian people we are not doing. This is Europe's poorest country mm. for whom a billion dollars would have been very nice. Thank you. Mm -hmm. It's unfortunate that European countries, particularly Eastern European countries, are only finding out a bit late in the game what EU membership really 
means um EU membership means being part of uh EU kind of super state, kinda of like the United States of Europe that is controlled from Brussels by a bunch of um white Anglo Saxon Protestant uh bureauc- and Catholics. Well the old Catholic as well. Bureaucrats <laughs> uh who are just, you know, power mad elite type people and but they are subservient to the dictates of of Washington and so uh, people, Eastern European countries who all joined uh, the EU in the past number of years uh, are only finding out now um, that they don't really have any sovereignty. When they joined the EU, EU they gave up their sovereign, sovereignty and they were effectively became, at that point when they joined, they became vassal states of the kind of Anglo-American or American empire. Uh, and because they're all entirely dependent, you know, from an economic point of view, particularly the smaller Eastern European states are all entirely dependent on the EU. Their economies are dependent on the EU. And the EU uh, kind of HQ in in Brussels can exert a lot of pressure, much more pressure than uh, Russia could exert, for example. And that's why you're seeing them all fall in line because they have sold their souls, essentially, the EU and the EU now controls them. And the EU in turn is controlled from ultimately by by Washington. So they didn't realize it, but they sold their souls to Washington and they are no longer sovereign states. They were no longer sovereign states as soon as they joined the EU. And it's only coming out now because um, Russia came on the scene and started exerting influence and started uh, pulling in the opposite direction and started making sense effectively and started talking about, you know, let's do business. Everybody gets on well. Everybody gets a share of the pie, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, that makes sense to you know the average, not completely psychopathic politician in these countries and stuff. And they say, "Yeah, sure, we'll do business with Russia." And then they say, "Then they get the memo." Then they go, "What? What? I can't do. What do you mean I can't do business with what?" And it's, uh, there's a, you know the penny is dropping for all these people, and um, it remains to be seen. There's only one example of anybody really um, breaking ranks, uh, and that's in Hungary. Uh, uh-huh. And of course, that's uh, um, McCain has called uh, the Hungarian president uh, new a, a dictator, essentially a, a Hitler, a new Hitler. Which is, you know, that's what everybody is. Whenever they don't agree with you, they're Hitler. That's right. He McCain spoke on the Senate floor this week. You know, we had a wee rant. He said, "Hungary's leader, Viktor Orban." is, quote, a neo-fascist dictator cozying up to Putin. Mm. He was speaking, uh, he was was formally speaking to voice his complaints about certain appointees to ambassadorial positions by Obama. He says, I'm not against political appointees. That is essentially where somebody buys an, an ambassadorship at one of the U.S.'s provinces around the world. I understand how the game is played, but Hungary is on the verge of... This is beautiful. Hungary is on the verge of ceding its sovereignty to a neo-fascist dictator getting in bed with Vladimir Putin. Mm. And we're going to send Hollywood producer Colleen Bell, the producer of The Bold and the Beautiful, as our ambassador there. (laughs) Which is true. She she is due to be the ambassador. That's one of those paid ambassadorships. Um, we donate money to your favorite uh, presidential candidate, and if he gets to be president, then he gives you an ambassadorship. And it doesn't matter if you have any experience in international relations, you know. Well, no. look at Sarah, pa- Sarah Palin, you know, she didn't... Well, they fit the profile. They're good actors. Exactly, yeah. Now, McCain needs to go back in the hole, you know, uh, in, in Vietnam, you know. He needs to go back in there, and uh, he needs to cool off for a while, you know. So really, 
Well, he put him in the there's, hole. There's something I know he's an idiot, and we say stupid things. He, wherever he shows up or says something about mm. stuff happens. Yeah, he's I'm not things. saying that's his power having weight, but whoever he's an errand boy for. Well, but he obviously is. Yeah, he obviously has some has some power, and, and is still is still there. Is working in the background. He's one of the kind of the gophers. The but that when you're a gopher for the kind of elite in the U.S. essentially, and, and you know, doing their doing their uh, Running their errands essentially for them, uh, you know, you're pretty pretty high up. You're above. The, yeah, the he's like a roving ambassador. Yeah, you're above a presidential level or anything like that. You know, you're you're in the know. You're on a you're on the various select committees, etc. And you're really kind of pushing policy in a particular way that has nothing to do with official policy. You know, um, but <laughs> he uh, uh, that's an example of, uh, of of the kind of caliber of person who rises to the top or rises close to the top. In the U.S., you know, you've got John McCain. This is somebody that can. Yeah. Vladimir Putin actually said, uh, described him pretty well. He said, "Mr. McCain fought in Vietnam. I think that he had enough. I think that he has had enough blood of peaceful citizens on his hands. Or you would assume." And he said, "It must be impossible for him to live without these disgusting scenes anymore." He said, "Mr. McCain was captured, and they kept him not just in prison, but in a pit for several years. Anyone would go nuts." That's a fairly accurate, uh, uh, accurate description of John McCain, but it's also interesting that someone of that psychological profile, who's, who was probably born a psychopath, but if he wasn't born a psychopath, he, you know, developed the trace of one throughout his life, and then he was just as a kind of cherry on the cake. He was, uh, you know, spent a few years in a in a pit in Vietnam. You know, uh, didn't something come out where his account of Vietnam, yeah, from fellow POWs was trashed? Well, trashed or... Because what, they water, knew that he was the son of a senator himself. Watered time. down, whatever, yeah. But anyway, it's like, you know, he's nuts, basically. Uh, he's crazy, but that's... When you're crazy, that's... Uh, you put that at the top of your of your resume when you are applying for positions in American politics. I'm completely batshit crazy, and it really helps to get the job. Regarding the uh, the South Stream, I got uh, my favorite quote from him today, from um, this week. First, he said it was a big setback for Vladimir. He doesn't even call him Putin. Mm. And then um, he was all cheerful, talking about how um, how the U.S. will step up to the plate now and give uh, Europe all its natural gas. Yeah, like that's going to happen in 2012, supposedly. And then he says, um, 2020. Uh, 20, sorry. Um, and he said Bulgaria's decision not to allow the construction of the proposed South Stream pipeline project. Bulgaria's decision, yeah, right. He is satisfied with it. Good boys. Uh, I'm glad our friends in Europe canceled the pipeline that was going to go through Europe, he said. And then in a press release, he stated that his personal efforts to urge the Bulgarian government to look toward Europe to secure its energy interests and refrain from working with Russia were successful and culminated with Russian President Vladimir Putin's decision to forego the project entirely. Yeah. Therefore, he should be congratulated for that. Out of boy, McCain. It's an example. Wow. I mean, it's basically saying it's, it, it confirms what we've been saying to date, which is that it's effectively saying that the U.S. is, is McCain, they're speaking for the U.S. government and the U.S. power brokers, is saying that they're happy that the European Union has rejected uh, a business opportunity to make a lot of money 
for the European Union. Uh, obviously, the European Union is not happy about that. Who would be? Everybody likes money, right? Mm-hmm. But the U.S. is happy about it. I never say, say it explicitly, but I mean, he says, you know, we're happy that Bulgaria has decided cancel. We're satisfied. Yeah, they're they're satisfied that they've they've decided to cancel the pipeline. But the pipeline promised hundreds of millions of dollars or euros for the Bulgarian and other Eastern European economies. So are those countries happy about that? No. So why is the U.S. happy about it? Well, apparently they have no shame in coming out and saying that they're happy about it, but it's quite clear. It's not, you know what I mean? It's not like he can, he's arguing that they were going to make a bad decision for, for themselves in their own interests. What he's saying is that they were going to make a good business decision, and he's happy that they didn't because it serves the U.S. interest of trying to screw over Russia and stop Russia from cementing economic ties with Eastern European countries or EU countries. That's the last thing that the U.S. wants to see happen because the U.S. is uh, terrified of the EU slowly but surely kind of waking up to the geopolitical reality, which is that you're on the Eurasian landmass and Russia is a big country, Russia is your main energy supplier, uh, and that's who you should yeah. go with and you should be friends with them. And, and you know, instead of fuck the EU, fuck America because they're 5,000 miles away across the ocean. Why are we beholden to these people? But, of course, even people in the EU, EU are not unaware of that. Uh, and all things being equal, you would probably see real politics take hold and over a course of a number of years that's what would happen you'd have your eurasian integration economic etc integration only reason it isn't happening is because the u.s has a certain percentage of high level politicians and bureaucrats in the eu by the cojones yep and they're pretty insulting too i mean when they, when they, any of those wackos talk, they always av- avoid the topic of how it's affecting the EU. I mean, like you don't count. There was, um, there was Susan Rice too, national security advisor, psycho, who, uh, who said uh, all cheerfully too on Tuesday, the news that Russia has pulled back from its South Stream pipeline to southern Southern Europe is indicative of the mounting cost that Russia is paying for its behavior. Then she added, as a result, a major project which had been championed by Putin and the Russian government is now not likely to materialize. When you look at where the Russian economy is, ignore the EU, it has suffered over the last year substantially as a result of sanctions and also as a result of declining oil prices, and the combination is pretty powerful. First, I want to see where Russia is really suffering. Well, Russia is, is suffering, yeah, but, but it's not to the point where it's... Uh, not the way she's trying to, no, but to make it sound. It's all just rhetoric and propaganda and, you know, reality creation. You and know, where's the EU? I mean, the EU is suffering a lot from the... Oh, wait, well, you don't matter. We're just satisfied with you. Keep there was going. a project that wasn't just championed by Russia. It was a project that was championed by the European... by the EU and by European countries that were going to benefit from it. So, But she... Uh, conspicuously leaves that one, leaves that part of it out, you know. This was merely some kind of a Russian, nefarious Russian agenda to sneak their pipeline into Europe, you know, and uh, maybe smuggle some 
little green men in the pipes or something like that and, and invade Europe. Uh, so that's the way it's being presented. That, that's the way they see it effectively. Uh, little green men in the form of, you know, billions of cubic uh, feet of, of gas that would solidify ties between Europe and, and Russia. That's what, that's what, you know, you have to, you have to deconstruct or, or translate everything that the U.S. government or government representatives say about Russia. You know, it's all in the context of they're terrified of Russia. And, you know, they hate Russia because they're afraid of them. And they're afraid of them because Russia is a threat to their positions of their, their dominant position uh, on, the, on the global stage. And uh, that's pretty much all it is, really, you know. A little bit more context on Hungary. Uh, the situation with Hungary isn't just that the original route of the pipeline would have ended there. No, it would have ended in Austria. It would have gone through Hungary. Um, <clears throat> something else being brokered in Hungary by Russia, well, by both parties, is a massive network, network, or just one nuclear plant that the Russians would essentially build for Hungary. This is another layer. Um, it kind of is spoken about less. We're, we're talking about gas pipelines and then oil let's talk about is nuclear power. There's a history when you go back to crisis decades ago of project after project to build nuclear stations in European countries and elsewhere that were uh, axed by very, very deliberate manipulation early from Washington. But what it's really coming from is the power brokers who have majority control of of the world's oil I say all, but they have they have the substantial valve. They're the kind of people who can get onto Saudi Arabia and get them to, you know, drop the prices forty percent in order to hurt Russia. These kind of people. So nuclear is kind of I think they really, really fear nuclear because it would actually make obsolete their major valve on the control of everything on this planet. Maybe not obsolete, but it would less it would re- reduce it, mm. reduce their control. I mean, one of the reasons France has um, has some and may exert, may use its uh, its its power, its, its influence in this in this respect is um, France produces, I think, of any country in the world, most of its uh, electricity uh, through nuclear power stations. Um, so it's less reliant, effectively, on Russian Russian gas than other European countries, and um, the yeah, the US wants to make sure that um, that you know other European countries don't go in the same direction, type thing, because um, it gives it, it frees them up essentially, you know, um, it, leaves, it gives them a little bit more independence. I mean, the next place to look really is Finland, because Finland recently. Um, Agreed a joint nuclear uh, deal with Russia for Russia to build uh, a nuclear power plant in Finland. It's like eight point seven billion dollars uh, agreement or deal. Uh, and it's funny to see this. You know, all this is going on, but then you see these countries do, doing business uh, with Russia anyway. You know, uh, and Finland. Finland is going, I mean, you should look to Finland in the, in the coming weeks and months for uh, kind of pressure being put on Finland to 
to reject this kind of a deal uh, because obviously it's an economic deal. It, it's a long-term economic deal and um, it solidifies relationships between uh, Finland and and Russia. And the problem with Finland is uh, is that getting Finland to to renege on that deal is going to be very difficult because Finland relies uh, on Russia for 100% of its gas supply. So if Finland gets all of its gas from Russia, uh, that's a serious uh, bit of leverage that Russia has and it uh, makes it very difficult for anybody to come in and try and convince uh, the Finns to stop doing business over nuclear deals with Russia because everybody knows that Russia well, listen, you know, if you're not going to do business with us, then we don't want to do business with you, so we'll just shut off your gas. For Finland, that's a serious problem, 100%, you know. So, you know, is the U.S. going to be riding in on their gas ships and, you know, fill everybody up in Europe who's, you know, who, who in their right mind would rely on the responsibility or sense of responsibility or sense of kind of like loyalty of the psychopaths in the U.S. to actually make good on their promises to we'll supply all your energy needs just wait 10 years just you know just it'll be a bit cold for a while but just stop buying Russian gas and we'll get there eventually we promise yeah right they don't give a shit about Russia they don't give a shit about EU they only care about screwing over Russia yeah and they only care about the EU and to the extent that they can use the EU to screw over Russia and the EU is meant to bend over and take it uh, because you know you're you're our slave, essentially. We own you. Yeah, and the idea that um, Russia is playing some game in order to dominate the countries and make them dependent for their energy that's, needs. That's the bullshit narrative. It's just I know. about doing business. <laughs> it's to do business. But it's, doing business means that you are the big, fat, psycho cats in the USA who own it all and just leave the scraps for other people, where, where you rule supreme, anybody coming in and taking a piece of the pie means less for you. And they cannot conceive of such a possibility. They will not give it up one inch. And it's not that they're giving up, they'd be giving up something uh, to the detriment of, you know, the entire world, or it would be some kind of horrible thing for the countries or any countries. It's all about freedom and democracy. That's yeah, all bullshit. It's about greed, unfettered greed. And, but they simply will not give up the complete control they have over pretty much everything, or they think they have over everything. They will not; they were not willing to give it up. And so it's not like there's some negative involved in here. You're coming from a position, the U.S. position of extreme greed and corruption, and now I'm wanting to, and then wanting to maintain that, and Russia uh, being the, you know, the, casting the the, the specter. Of, of them having to give that up just in the basis of free trade. You know, let's not, let's no one kind of be too greedy here. We can all share the wealth amongst ourselves. And that's like, the US is like, what? What the hell are you talking it's, about? It's incomprehensible. Isn't they, they, they come up. That's with what these, Russia's proposing. They, and, and the US portrays that. In all the ways that it's been betraying it. Hitler, Russian yeah. Empire, Soviet Union, communists are coming to get you. They come up with all sorts of bullshit, scaremongering tactics to simply 
try and scare people into believing that that's what's actually happening when what's actually happening behind the scenes and what the U.S. is actually scared of is equality. They hate equality. Why? Because they rule supreme. They own it all. Yeah, and they're challenged on it, and their response is something along the lines of <clears throat> American exceptionalism. What the hell does that mean? What does it mean? <laughs> I mean, they say they say they know what it means, but they give some expression of it. But I, it's no different. You're the chosen ones, and screw the rest of you. Exactly. It's, it's, they're exceptional, all right, but not not in the way they think. It's so backwards. Not in the way they say. They're exceptionally psychopathic. <clears throat> That's what American exceptionalism is all about. Anyway, um, there's been other stuff going on uh, recently. Obviously, since we've had uh, a kind of a behind-the-headlines type show, i.e. where we haven't had a guest on, uh, there's been the Ferguson shootings, and Ferguson really set things off. Um, not the Ferguson shooting, sorry. This Ferguson uh, grand jury result and the protests uh, it really set things off, it seems, because in the past few weeks there have been there's this wave, rolling wave of protests, um, you know, going going on around uh, around the U.S. Uh-huh. in many different countries. I mean, there's one just going on just today in Berkeley. Uh, the headlines are telling us rubber bullets, tear gas in Berkeley as police disperse. Eric Gardner and uh, hashtag Eric Gardner hashtag Ferguson rally. Um, you know, so there's a lot of, uh, and these protests have been going on in various cities uh, across the U.S. All on the same theme theme of police brutality, and it seems to have been ignited by the Ferguson uh, miscarriage of justice, obvious miscarriage of justice, um, which kind of uh, makes it clear that the narrative that that the media and the U.S. government tried to build up around the Ferguson protest was that it was just the black communities, the local black community just essentially being a bunch of kind of thugs and hoodlums, you know, um, and rioting and burning buildings and cars, etc. Obviously, it, that's not all it is. When the same thing spread, the, the same kind of protests continue on and spread around the U.S., and it's not just black people protesting. There's a lot of uh, ordinary white Americans and of different, uh, well, the students in Berkeley are the yeah, absolutely sons and daughters of the elites. So yeah, so I mean, there's, this is something that has touched a nerve not just among the black community in the U.S. but also among uh, uh, the general a lot of people among uh, throughout, the, throughout the throughout the U.S. who who have a bit of a conscience and uh, feel that it's necessary to stand up and stand with, uh, you know. I suppose stand with the black community, but they're also standing up for themselves because, I mean, the police really are off the leash in the U.S. They're kind of flooded with either psychopaths or with, you know, just extreme authoritarian types who just want to go out and beat heads and shoot people and uh, force everybody force everybody to respect my authority. And, um, and people are feeling it, not just the black communities, but uh, everybody's feeling it, and they feel like it's something that they need to stand up for and stand against. And it's good to see, you know. Yeah, and these are big protests. Like yeah. Thousands of people, ten or 12,000 in New York. Mm. I mean, it's not just a little group of people. Well, uh, it's disgusting, actually, to see the way that it's portrayed. You know, I mean, the extent of the problem in the U.S. is far, far greater than anybody admits, and, of course, the media plays it down, the government plays it down and stuff. But... Um, I mean, it's been in the news for 
couple of years now, but it's been brought up again that uh, the incarceration the incarceration rate uh, per 100,000 of black males um, in the US is, depending on when you look at it in South Africa, it's three to five times uh, the level of incarceration of black males in South Africa during the apartheid regime. You know, so apartheid were, there was no secret made of the fact that blacks were second-class citizens. Africans in South Africa were black were second-class citizens. You would expect there to be a very high incarceration rate there, particularly of male, uh, male South Africans, male black South Africans. Uh, but in the U.S., it's somewhere between three and five times the number of people, of black African-Americans, African-Americans, whatever, who are put in prison by the U.S., so if apartheid is the yardstick, I mean, uh, black people in the U.S. are, are treated worse than uh, blacks were treated in apartheid South but Africa. Joe, but Joe, this this hurts my brain. Why? Mm-hmm. Because the president's black. Because freedom and democracy. The president's black, so everything's awesome. Yeah. Right? Yeah, but it's going to have to do with... Actually, about the president, um... He's been very quiet, hasn't he? I mean, the outgoing Attorney General Holder, he's also half black, I think. Between him and Obama, they've made a few statements about, and they've made a few moves to sort of deal with the situation. One of them was immediately after the grand jury and the restart of the recent round of protests slash riots in Ferguson, Missouri, was that Obama declared or decreed or whatever that police officers would wear cameras so everything would be above board, so to speak, because everything could be seen whenever there's a call and police intervene in anything. Um, I, I get the impression that Obama, uh, he's not simply siding with the police state as a whole on this. I think if he, I think he wishes he had more power to really do something about it. I don't think he's liking what he's seeing. You reckon? No. Why? Because of some of the things he said. I know saying and doing isn't the same thing when it comes to someone like that. Don't but, you think he has to say those things? Because he's black? Just to keep people uh-huh. on the side? Yeah. I mean, it would be a bit of a, be a, bit of a an egregious <laughs> uh, kind of slap in the face to all those black people who voted for him if he, as a black president, were to not say something Anomaly in support of his his race, let's say, uh, you know, as people expect him to. He keeps them on side in that sense. You know what I mean? It gives them some hope that there's still some accountability. We still have a black president, so it's a savvy kind of um, move, a propaganda move for him to do that. But I can't imagine that he gives a shit one way or another. One of the things he said in any real way was that this. Uh, was not about race first and foremost. It was about police brutality, and he used those terms. Mm. He's giving voice there to the protesters. They are protesting against police brutality. Mm. No, but it, is, it is it is about race. Uh, so he's full of shit. It's about police brutality and race. Uh, police brutality uh, of a racist slant. Uh, which is not surprising, you know. I mean, any police state 
uh, are agents of a police state, our security forces in a police state, which America is, <laughs> um, uh, tend to always pick on the minorities, you know, because it's because uh, the minorities, because they're marginalized, usually um, it's easy to they're the first target of of kind of uh, stormtrooper types, you know. Um, if it's not about race, how do you explain the fact that a black male born in two thousand and one had a 32% chance of spending some portion of his life in prison, while a white male born the same year had a 6% chance. If it's not about race, how come in major American cities, as many as 80% of young African-American men have criminal records? If it's not about race, how come African-Americans who use drugs are more than four times as likely to be incarcerated than whites who use drugs? And if it's not about race, how come in seven states... African Americans constitute eighty percent or more of all drug offenders sent to prison. I fold, Juliana. Well, the thing is, but well, it's not, he can say whatever. I, I think I think Joe has a point here, and the, I don't believe a word he says or any any pang of conscience we could attribute to him. I mean, he's just acting his. I'm not thinking he's coming from conscious. I think he's coming from strategy. From strategy, well, yeah, he can say whatever he wants. I think he, wants he and sees shit is going down in this country in a big way. How are we going to deal with this brewing revolution? Yeah, but then he doesn't have to make sure that the his decree, whatever it is, is applied, that each cop has a camera. I mean, all that is empty words. And on the ground, they can do whatever they want. So, yeah, I mean, strategically speaking, he would have to say something like that. Well, so, but but if it's not just getting back to the the race question, because it's an interesting question, is it about race or not? You know, those statistics would suggest it is about race, um, but that's not the whole story because obviously uh, those statistics argue for there being a kind of black underclass in the U.S. that has been marginalized um, for a long time. Sixty or seventy years ago, blacks uh, in the U.S. couldn't pee in the same toilet as whites and couldn't get in the same bus as whites. I mean, it's not like there isn't a history of racial uh, segregation and discrimination in the U.S. in in recent history. Uh, It doesn't go away very quickly, or it doesn't go away. It goes away to some extent. It's it's kind of like uh, airbrushed out with all sorts of platitudes and, you know, um, fancy words, but um, it's still there as an undercurrent, but even... I mean, the legacy of that racial discrimination and the, against blacks in the U.S. Is, is that blacks became effectively an underclass and were marginalized in society and had uh, always worked the, the worst jobs for the, uh, for the least money and uh, had the worst kind of, kind of um, living conditions or social conditions. Um, and that became entrenched in U.S. society and that creates a situation where disenfranchised young black men end up turning to crime. And so it's a self-fulfilling prophecy then, right? Because they uh, constitute a greater number of people who are arrested, first because they are socially marginalized and tend towards or forced into crime, let's say, more so than whites who are more privileged, and also because they're racially racially, uh, profiled in that sense, because there's the undercurrent of racism. So the two go together. Marginalization, historical marginalization of the black community based on overt racism, uh, uh, leading to uh, criminality, a higher percentage, a higher amount or percentage of criminality among black populations in certain areas that then uh, confirms the stereotype or confirms the racist tendencies 
which just compounds itself, you know. Yeah, I think if anything, the racist element is more as a um, cues here because they can use it, they use this stereotype to uh, to trigger those things in people. And and you'd see, you, I mean, last week it was sometimes appalling to just read comments on Twitter or whatever. I mean, the social networks about the protests and how it's easy. Some people were, you know, obviously middle class, saying, you know, yeah, but they shouldn't be so violent, they shouldn't behave like this, blah, 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 you know, basically defending the cops. And you do see all the time in the news police brutality committed against whites, you know, so people are protesting for a real cause, a real problem, and in the middle of all this, because of these, you know, this majority of crime plus the stereotype and the racism that carries on through generations... Yeah, and there's also... It's a, like almost like a scapegoat thing. I mean, yeah, there can be more, but... I mean, I think the media is using it a lot to make us believe that it's a question of race when they're trying to cover up the fact that people are really pissed off because there is police brutality mm. against every single citizen, against their own children. Yeah, well, that'll be harder and harder to, to cover up as more and more white people get on the streets and protest as well, which is what should, is, which is what should happen and, and would dismay, dispel that that myth that it's just a, a you know a, a problem uh, for for black people. But I mean, there's the other aspect of the um, the CIA effectively having a policy. Uh, not the war on drugs, but the war of drugs, where they basically ran drugs from South America and from Asia during the kind of uh, 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, and continue to do today, and um, effectively flooded the lower class, lower income areas, which were very often black, with drugs. Uh, you know, they said it was it was CIA business. That's how the CIA maintains partly how it maintains its black budget is through uh, the sale of drugs, and has done for 40, 50 years, and they make a lot of money. Uh, from selling drugs, from running drugs and selling drugs, and they sold it to, uh, they, they put them on the streets in America. Uh, uh, there's a there's a few other statistics about that. I mean, um, the U.S. prison population for most of the 1900s, most of the last century, uh, hovered around uh, 24,000 people. But in the 1980s, uh, there was a staggering rise uh, in the prison population to nearly a quarter of a million. So it rose like 10 times in the 1980s from what it was for most of the rest of the century. And the main cause was the war on drugs. Suddenly they had this war on drugs, which was under Reagan, launched this war on drugs. Uh, uh, no, that was Nixon. No, but in the 1980s under President oh, Reagan, yeah. it was, uh, his, his war on drugs was uh, coincided with this massive increase in the prison population, uh, which obviously was uh, disproportionately of, of blacks. Um, and the whole three strikes law, three strikes and you're out, you know, so before that, the, essentially the justice system for drug offences became much more uh, severe and draconian, which massively increased the, the prison population. But the drug problem itself had been created by the CIA. So it's almost like they, you know, <laughs> did it deliberately. They did it to make money, but they're responsible for it. And then the government puts laws in place to actually uh, to put in prison all these people that the CIA is put, uh, selling drugs to and offering drugs to, giving drugs to, essentially. Um and the other aspect of it is the privatization of the prison population, of the prison system in the U.S., where prisons were no longer state-run, but they were privatized. They were run by companies, and those companies were uh, that were that are today running prisons. Um, they have to have a they 
aim for the demand, uh, well, they have to have a 90-some percent, 97 percent uh, 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 quota, essentially fill rate, you know, um, because they are paid by the state for looking after prisoners. So the more prisoners they have in the prison, the more money they get. And if they don't reach a certain amount, the state has to give them money. A taxpayer's money has to go to a prison that isn't full to, to effectively fill, pay for what... This is bizarre. It'll kind of bake your noodle. Um, the state taxpayer money has to be paid to a private prison company for every cell that isn't that it doesn't have a prisoner in it. Because the prison... Is set up and says, "Okay, the guy says, I'm only going to I'm only going to start a prison here if I can make all the money I can get out of it. I, I am building rooms, aka cells here, and I've, I'm putting investment into it. And you're going to pay me for looking after the prisoners that come into these cells. If my cells are empty, I'm losing out on my investment. In that case, you have to the state has to pay using taxpayers' money for the empty cells. So there's." The state doesn't want to pay that money uh, because you know, the rationale is, well, there's, there's criminals out there, so those, those, those prison cells should be full. So essentially it's a quota system where uh, police working at U.S. kind of you know, security forces, police, are working in conjunction or in league with the private prison authorities to make sure that people go into the cells. So it's like cop goes out in the beat and says, you know, we've just got a, you know, they had a meeting just after he goes out in, on the beat and they're all told, listen, our local prison here, it's only at 80% capacity. Uh, we need to get people in there. And we know there's criminals out there. So you guys aren't doing your job. So can you please go and find some criminals? Here, take some of these drugs, plant them. Do whatever, you know, and that contributes to, obviously plays into a kind of heavy-handed uh, attitude by police and also the whole, you know, it's just, it's, it gets it's a, better. It compounds itself. Compounds you know? itself. Well, listen to this compoundization. Don't know what the word is. 50% of the material, not the actual weaponry, but bulletproof vests, uniforms, 50% of the equipment used by all military personnel in the United States is manufactured by the prisoners. That is then sold on when it's no longer in use by the military to the police forces. Then the police forces then use it to put more people in prison who will then make more equipment for more police to put people in prison and on it goes. And that kind of, that, that kind of situation obviously can only go down, down, you know, and implode upon itself at some point, you know. It's so it's so ripe for something just to, to break, for it to collapse under its own, you know, its own weight of corruption and sleaze and greed. You know, something just has to go wrong. And the, 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 the kind of, um, the unknown there, the, uh, the wild card is the population, the ordinary population of the U.S., you know. Who, when they, when that level of corruption and sleaze and greed amongst people in power gets uh, gets too much, uh, something can something in some way or other can break out. Not that it's going to change much, but it would certainly shake it up and and maybe provide an opportunity for more people to wake up and to see the nature mm-hmm. and the extent of the corruption. We had the Occupy Wall Street movement. They beat the crap out of that. 
now we have something else, and well, we'll see how it goes. Um, it's gathering momentum. It's gathering momentum in a way that's you can see if you, if you watch it, you can see how it, it it's nonlinear. Among the protests taking place across the U.S. right now, there's one that's specific to one issue, and the separate issue is not to do with how the police handled the case. It involves a rape case in the University of Virginia, West Virginia, University of Virginia, I think, uh, UVA. And it's just on the back of the Rolling Stone article you may have heard about in the last month or last week in which it gives a story of someone who was viciously gang-raped in one of the fraternity houses of this university. And that gave the courage to either people she knew or people who attend the university to protest about it, and it became a public protest. Uh, Rolling Stone has since wimped out and retracted some of what was said because the victim's story was not reliable. So there's some serious perception management going on there. But this is an example of, uh, I think in any other situation, as horrible as that case was, it would not have garnered an actual protest. But it's it's happening in the context of another, let's say, yeah. overall outbreak. An of overall sense of anger of... Against injustice. Injustice. Fundamental injustice, you know. Uh, we have um, Kent from West Virginia on the line, so um, hi Kent, how, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm pretty good. I've got a couple of observations about the war on drugs. Uh, um, mm-hmm. I um, heard something uh, sometime back, just checked it on the internet. Yeah, what uh, really that happened, uh, the man behind it was not so much Ronald Reagan, was Tip O'Neill, who was the uh, Speaker of the House back at the, of course, he was during Reagan's presidency. But um, the interesting thing of it is, is uh, I remember this very well because I grew up, I lived in Washington, and there was a basketball player by the name of Len Bias, B-I-A-S, and he was played at the University of Maryland, and which is right by Washington, so it's like the local team there. And he was a star, and he got a big contract to make a lot of money, play for a professional team, and he went out and partied and uh, died of drugs. And this created sort of like a scandal uh, you know, how can that happen? Sort of attitude, and it provided the impetus for um, um, Tip O'Neill to push through all these draconian laws, mandatory minimum sentences for um, for drugs, and uh, for instance, uh, crack cocaine, which is um, which, which is you know a, a paper which the black, you know, poor black people are going to use. A small amount will get you a big sentence, whereas the powdered cocaine, which the white, you know, you have to have like a, almost a bucket full of it to get a maximum sentence. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and there's a, I'll give you a website, Drug Warrant, Drug War Rant, DrugWarRant.com. There's some mm-hmm. place for you to look sort of information. But, yeah, there's all, and then like you say, the prisons too, and and it's the prisons are almost, it's, it's almost like, we have a you know the people the guys have to go in there and do works. So it's almost like slavery in a, a modern day slavery is what it amounts to more or less. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Drugwarrant dot com is a good source for information on that. So. All right, we'll check it out. Okay, well thanks. All right, thanks for call, Kent. Thanks, Kent. Thank you. Okay, thanks. Yeah, you got a great point. It's modern day slavery. It's incredible how the situation. <laughs> 
has come full circle or never let the circle, the, the same latent underlying racism is made manifest just in a different way. You have institutions largely full of black people who work for free. Yeah, as I was listening to Joe, I kept wondering, okay, he talked about the empty cells and the government has to pay for that, but who pays for the prisoner, the prisoner's food, the prisoner's clothes and stuff? And I'm, and then, you know, it becomes clear when you know that it's an industry going on mm -hmm. within the prison and they make their own, you know, business deals. They sell the equipment that you were talking yeah. about. I mean, they need the workers at the factory, basically, mm -hmm. slavery for free. Yeah, and they make profit out of them, and so each each individual that joins the prison then is made to work and make yeah. profit for the company. So it's like one of the major industries in prisons in the U.S. is not uh, you know giving prisoners um, you know training and skills so they can go back to work and be responsible, um, productive citizens when they get released, uh, but rather to put them to work to make. Uh, you know, gear, uh, police state uh, equipment, essentially, to perpetuate the system, perpetuate the uh, the kind of corrupt and uh, prison system that is where we find a ridiculously uh, large percentage of prisoners per capita. I think the U.S. is number one. Uh, there's more people in prisons in the world per capita than anywhere else in the world, and. Uh, a really disproportionate number of black people in prisons. And they're all victims effect effectively, you know. I mean, obviously, there's some particular cases, but the vast majority of them are, I'd have to be put down as victims, and they're being victimized by the by the state, you know. Um, just well, just on, on protests and Ferguson, uh, you mentioned you were surprised by some of the reaction on some tweets on Twitter you saw, I mean, I was surprised by some of the reaction on our, our own website on Sotnet yeah. from, you know, regular readers. Uh, wow, this is some serious vitriol that was directed at yours truly and all of us here. Um, and also on our Facebook page. Oh, maybe well, that's I think I have to stand up there and say that I got the worst of it. Okay. Oh, you both were even on that one. <laughs> I think I poked the bears. <laughs> Alrighty. All right. Well, <laughs> so I've got, I can expect worse in yeah. future cases. Yeah. So what's your point? <laughs> I have my, I complete my training. Well, um, I have a wee theory as to why this upsets them so much. I noticed that in a lot of cases, it, it's I couldn't identify specific people, but say other websites in the alternative media, they're made, they're putting a spin on this that is somewhere between apologizing for the cop and uh, okay, accepting there's something big going on and there's been injustice, and then it's suggesting to people, and I've seen our own thought readers repeat this back to us that the event wasn't somehow, the, the event by which I mean, the specifically the Ferguson shooting and subsequent protests both in August and now are somehow a contrived conspiracy, all of it planned 
being deliberately whipped up by someone powerful for some ends and purposes unknown. I haven't seen anyone follow through with the logical conclusion because I don't understand really what they're trying to suggest here. I can understand that something happens and then somebody tries to uh, put some spin on a situation to provoke it a certain way in order to better control the fallout from it. But d- deliberately causing protests and riots in order to what? That doesn't make any sense to me. What I would say, though, uh, there are some people who have analyzed some of the footage from, uh, I think it's police and also journalist footage of the August situation in Ferguson. And there are some very suspicious incidents where some of the fires that started in the the businesses, uh, shop stores, um, in cars and parking lots and so on in downtown Ferguson, they're very suspicious because those areas were already under lockdown and there were no large crowds of protest there. Mm. Alas, the next morning in the front page headline, riot erupts in Ferguson and they show an image of the same parking lot with every single car torch. There's something going on. I think there may have been some deliberate sabotage, which would make sense because we know that they do have agents provocateurs, people who will pretend to be protesters deliberately trying to start a riot by throwing something at a cop, whatever. So that was definitely going on. I think the riot effect, so they set off fires, was also done deliberately. But this wasn't with a view to creating a national protest movement. This is with a view to tarnishing the protest movement. Of course, like the so those alternative sites really need to be getting behind it, mm-hmm. you know, not criticizing it mm-hmm. as all one big left-wing yeah. conspiracy of some kind. Yeah, it, tries, I mean, it tries to tarnish and diminish the actual genuine uh, grievances and, and justices uh, that people will be expressing, for example, in places like Ferguson, um, by giving the media something else to focus on, which is riots and burning, etc. That's totally, I mean, it's like you said, a standard oper- operating procedure, uh, e- even in, in, in peaceful protests. And Ferguson started out as a peaceful protest. So as soon as you have a peaceful, peaceful protest anywhere in the U.S. that's of any size and anywhere else, uh, particularly in the Western world, uh, you're going to have members of the security forces in there uh, masquerading as protesters and causing violence because violence immediately um, allows the media to uh, to focus on it and to play it up and in that way uh, tarnish the nature of the protest as not really about something, you know... Um, some genuine grievance, but just about a bunch of rioters and people out in the street trying to trying to loot and steal things. Uh, you know, so it, it it blackens the name and and and, dis- and allows a lot of people to dismiss it. It, it. it prevents the message of that the protesters, the original protesters on the streets, actually wanted to convey. It prevents that message from reaching the ears, at least in an objective way, uh, in a clean way. It prevents it from reaching the ears of of a large number of people. Uh, particularly like, for example, white America, who might then actually say, well, yeah, you know, these people do have a, pro- uh, a genuine grievance and we should support it. Uh, it's much very difficult for the average white American far removed from any of those protests to support such a thing when they when it's presented to them as a bunch of crazed, you know, black people out in the streets wrecking and looting and burning and 
you know, attacking things and, and attacking the police. I mean, so it's spin. It's all just spin, you know. Yeah. And discredits the uh, the whole movement. And I would add too that it actually gives an excuse for more police control and more police violence because they're quote defending themselves. And that's yeah. when you get people like those well, uh, trolls you were talking about last week. When I mean, they were pretty much defending police brutality and calling you a lawless. What, what was it? One of them was saying like, well, what would you do? You you want no law, no order, no... I mean, they completely yeah. twisted the whole thing to call you an anarchist, pretty much. Yeah, so, the, so mix, creating, of, creating protests allows for people like that to actually make that argument. Obviously, they go to the extreme where you say, what, you're an anarchist, you don't want... You know, you don't want uh, any law and order, and that's a ridiculous that's argument. Ridiculous. I mean, it's like black but, and white thinking. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is yeah. it's a nuanced situation, and you're full of shit. <laughs> uh, uh, because <laughs> you're totally Joe, blind, and you're also an authoritarian follower, and the idea of yeah. not being an authority in your life, some politician ruling over you, scares the crap out of you, and you pee your pants at the very concept of it. So anything you say from that emotional uh, place, a rational emotional place, is is right. is, is nonsense. It's, it, it can be dismissed out of hand until you can go and get a grip on yourself and understand yourself and understand that you have an unhealthy attachment to authority and it's unhealthy because the authority that you're attached to is fundamentally corrupt. Until you can understand that about yourself and do something about <laughs> it, you have nothing to say in the matter. But a lot of these people are people who, if you said that to them before this event would be going totally right on. The police state sucks. I see it. I'm sick and tired of it. Hell, they would even say, yeah, we need a revolution of some kind mm. or massive change. Mm. I think when it actually came to it, when for whatever combination of reasons, I, I have a legal theory about why I think it took off in Ferguson, not because uh, the blacks are animals or any variation of that, but because Actually, there was a community feeling, mm-hmm. and one of ours was just just shot on the street. They all, everyone on the street saw where it got around. Mm-hmm. If anything, that's why there was a reaction to this particular event. Anyway, I think once the rest of America, particularly white America, saw the pushback, they crapped their pants, as you said, because they realized there then, just for a split second, if nothing else, this could be it. Mm. But when it came to it. They would just take the first lie thrown at them from mm-hmm. Darren Wilson or yeah. whoever to get them back and just in, go, you know, no, 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 no. Back into their comfort zone where they're not responsible for anything because the authorities are responsible for them. And, you know, they don't have to take responsibility for anything going on in the community or, God forbid, uh, take responsibility for uh, the corruption uh, amongst the, the supposed elected leaders that they supposedly elected to represent them that they have essentially put in power people who are fundamentally corrupt and not working in the interests yeah. of the local communities. I mean, that's when you got to go, okay, i got to do something about this. But people don't want to do anything about it. They yeah, want the dreamy... It's so twisted it. because they, they hate Congress. Yeah, Congress is the least popular. Yeah. They know, at yeah. least at some intellectual that's, level, that's that the nar- authorities at a, nar- at a narrative level. They tell themselves that's, that's yeah. their narrative. You know, that it'll, it'll all be okay. And they fall back on the idea that you need to get out and vote and elect good people the next time. So they're allowed to criticize all of their elected uh, representatives and stuff and, and say that they're a bunch of crooks or whatever, etc. And what we need to do is next election, 
four years, it's not even a few years, it's, it's not so far away, we're going to change it all and it's just this merry-go-round and they don't realize that government elections every year, every four years are nonsense, you know, that there's a power elite behind that who dictate policy and that's not even a secret government kind of conspiracy theory, that's basically, it, it's very clear that, you know, some some presidents and presidential teams only have a, a four-year term, they're only in power for four, four years, they have a, they come in with really no experience of running the country. Uh, it's not like someone who has never been president just come up through the ranks type of thing, but um, and, and got elected or, or ran for election. Like anybody can be a president in America, right? Joe Bloggs, Joe the Plumber type thing can, can become president. No, he can't. How's he gonna? How's he gonna run the country? He's he's the commander chief. He's gonna decide on all the important topics. What kind of bullshit fairy tale childish narrative is that? There are clearly people in power who have been in power for a long time who are well-versed in running the country, in deciding domestic and foreign policy. And there are think tanks and various other institutions who all, not even secretly, tell the government. The government, any whatever administration is, is in power, goes to these think tanks or gets uh, policy papers from these think tanks, and that's what sets policy. So if you want to look, if you want to know who's... Uh, running your country and deciding policies domestic and far, foreign in the U.S., for example, and in other countries, look at the people who are making the policies, these think tanks, as they're called in the U.S., like Brookings, etc. Uh, the people involved there are the ones who are effectively running the country and making the decisions. The president is a figurehead, a puppet. He's like the Queen of England. You know, at least if they had a monarchy in the U.S., you know, and they would call the king or the queen, you know, the commander-in-chief or something, everybody would see, like in England, they would realize that, yeah, they don't do anything, you know? Um, well, I think but in the U.S., um, there's this myth around, you know, the president, and he comes out with it and all this kind of stuff, you know? The president will come out and say, I made this decision, and I'm going to decide to do this, and I think we... It's all just nonsense, you know, just so much hot air, you know? And it's amazing that some people actually still believe it. But you know what, what you're saying actually makes me think that there could be... This case in particular, when it, when it um, concerns police, is uh, creates an, an even stronger narrative because, you know, like you were saying, people can think that in four years' time, the president will go, you know, a good guy is going to come over, we'll choose better the next time, whatever. But when it touches your everyday life, when you know that a cop can show at your door or shoot you or taser you in the middle of the street – then you need it's too fearful to actually go there. I mean, even people who can say, like you were saying, Neil, who can see that there's something wrong with the government, with the authorities, is just too scary. Yeah, but that's because it's got to the point where they have allowed it uh, to go so far, uh, where they have allowed this kind of police brutality to increase over the years to the point that they people are, as you say, too afraid to do anything about it. They have been the police have been allowed to show their hand, to show their pathology, to show their aggression publicly, and to get away with it. Uh, there's been this culture of cronyism and corruption um, within. Uh, I mean, for example, it's an it's an all law enforcement in the U.S. I mean, the FBI has there's some statistic that the FBI over the past you know ten years or something has investigated uh, you know two hundred and fifty, let's say. Uh, 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 incidents of possible uh, FBI misconduct, you know, as in misconduct of their officers involved in shooting or whatever, and in every single one of them, they said, nope, we did everything perfectly, uh, no, no one to blame here. Uh, it's obviously unbelievable, um, 
and the same applies in the, in the police force. The police force protect their own. There is no police officer in the U.S. at this point. It's got, got to the point where there is no police officer in the U.S. who can, in the course of fulfilling his duty, can effectively commit a crime up to and including shooting someone out of hand and be prosecuted for it in any significant way. Uh, just use Darren uh, Darren Wilson in the Ferguson shooting as an example. That's what happens. You know, and it's not just within the police force, but they're supported because obviously the chief of police in any particular district or area is closely tied to the, the state authorities, etc. And they all have the same interest. In the Ferguson case, the, obviously it was very clear that the state prosecutor who was meant to be representing the interests of the, the victim family, victim's family, uh, Mike Brown, uh, actually acted as a defense attorney for the, for, uh, the police officer. And that uh, district attorney, it was particularly the two assistant district attorneys who are running the, the grand jury and presenting evidence and stuff, uh, which they shouldn't have been doing anyway, but they, they presented all this evidence. And it was effectively evidence that exonerated the police officer when they were meant to be presenting evidence indicting the police officer. And the prosecutor, this is a prosecutor in Missouri, He's, that's, a, that's a state legislative state or political position. In Missouri, I mean, you don't have to go too far, too many more steps up until you understand that you're in the political system, the political elite system within the U.S. that was protecting a single officer against uh, a judgment against him for shooting, unlawfully shooting a black teenager. He was protected by the entire system. Why? Well, because it's the system. The average police officer in the street who's out there uh, on the beat is part of that system. And it's an oppressive, corrupt system that means to keep people under control. And keep them controlled, keep them down, and keep them in their place. And increasingly, as people start to, uh, more and more people start to show that they don't want to be kept in that oppressive place, well, they're just going to react in the same way they've always done to that kind of a threat, which is they put it down. With, with big sticks or, or guns or whatever. So, uh, but I mean, on, on the, talking about the the article that one of our editors wrote on it, that got a lot of flack. There were a few people on the comment commenting on on, on the article, and you, you're mentioning them. And one of the things that they the first criticism was that this was not news. This was not factual news. This was opinion, and therefore, and he called it inflammatory, you know, biased, etc. Opinion. So he was dismissing the entire article because it was opinion. <laughs> and there's this myth that people hold to that the the mainstream media presents objective facts, and then what we do, for example, is we would uh, give our opinion on that, and it's inherently biased. We present our truth. And everybody can present their own truth, and everybody down there as a as a yeah. as a reality. And that's free of their speech. Well, yeah, everybody can argue amongst themselves about what they think about this, and it's all well. It's undecided. Nobody knows what the truth is. But well, if you really want to know what the actual truth, you have to stick with the facts as presented to you by the mainstream media. But of course, anybody with half a brain realizes that the media doesn't present the facts. They present some of the facts, and they present particular facts that present a very particular uh, version of the story that leave the reader with an impression 
or dare I say it, an opinion. Therefore, it's not, it's entirely possible, and in fact it happens all the time, that the mainstream media presents facts. Yes, they're all facts, but it's actually an opinion. It's forming opinion. It's a manufacturing of opinion in the public by the limited presentation of facts. I mean, you can, you don't, you know, I don't need to explain it. You can think it yourself. You take the facts of a story and leave out half of them and present that as the story. Then people are going to come away with a particular opinion. If you presented all of the facts, they might have a different opinion. So mainstream media, just so anybody, in case anybody's wondering, mainstream media presents opinion all the time. There is nothing but opinion. There is no facts in this world. Well, we present the facts because we go and we find all of the story and we get as close to the actual objective facts that the mainstream media supposedly present as possible. We're the ones who do that. The media effectively presents opinion and it's the opinion, it's the biased opinion of the the, the, the elite, the system. Mm-hmm. So turn it around. That, that guy who's saying, you know, stick to the facts. No, the facts that you got about the Ferguson case from the mainstream media was a biased opinion. What we are presenting in our article is more of the facts more of the whole situation, allowing you to come to a more uh, objective conclusion about it. And the objective conclusion about the Ferguson uh, case, when you look at all the facts, was that Darren Darren, uh, Wilson went out and uh, unnecessarily, at the very least, and illegally shot uh, Mike Brown. Of course, the official judgment is that he didn't. But, hello, what's new? That's the world you live in. (laughs) Yeah, and they don't just present facts by leaving some out. They do that, of course. Well, they get so bad they these days so that, bad they that actually they actually just present. You can be reading it, and this this is where psychology is important, people, because you're reading it and you go, well, that's a statement in fact. And you check it out, the polar opposite of the truth. When that happens, you're you're being, let's say, mind-fucked because you are experiencing reversive blockade where very deliberately the direct opposite of the truth is being told to you. And the normal reaction from a human being is to, even if they they react to it as if, "Mm, that doesn't sound right, they will find a way, the mind finds a way to incorporate that fact, in quotes, it's not, it's a lie, into their reality. And so they end up with some variation of the same lie. And this is, this is embodied this week by this, uh, this bill passed in Congress by an overwhelming vote in which it outlines Russia's crimes. I'm just calling it the anti-Russia bill. I'm not sure what they called it. Outlined Russia's crimes and then said what we must do to rectify the situation. You should check it out. There are summaries of it on SOT. Also, the whole thing, of course, is available online, so I'm sure. And it is incredible read because each one of them is the opposite of reality. And this is the whole of Congress, with a few honorable exceptions, voting yes, saying yes, this is the view of how all America sees the world. Mm. It's called the House Resolution 758, for those who are looking mm. For it, and it was uh, passed on the 3rd of December. It was called the We Hate Russia Bill. <laughs> and uh, it was basically a resounding denunciation of Russia as being the epitome of all evil in the world. And in that respect, it was a complete, uh, it was an exercise in 
in pure fantasy, you know, imagination, basically. You know, it's what they want to believe, effectively. If you want to just read, it's not that long, and you can read all a few of the stipulations or the, the points, the whereases and the, and the etc. Um, it's, it's what they all want to believe, you know, and it's clearly not the case, you know, um, even based on, from a fact-based perspective. It's not uh, the things that they say, the things they accuse Russia of are clearly not by any standard of, of reason. Uh, they're not true at all it's not not the case um but that's what they want they want uh, i don't know they get they get in line they're all so bought and sold at this pay, at this stage you know um members of con- congress are just complete lackeys you know and they're <laughs> they're, just, they're 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 mind programmed idiots you know uh and they're all in it for themselves you know um they see nothing past the end of their own noses you know and they're so inured in American exceptionalism and USA, USA, that it's just, it's actually funny at this point, you know. They're comical, you know. Um, well, just to give you an idea, one of the main points is that it calls for Russia to reverse its illegal annexation of Crimea. I mean, right there, one of the main lies. Uh, the other one, end violations of the September 2014 ceasefire. I mean, the list just goes on and on. And it asked the president to um, help basically create more uh, visa bans and uh, and sanctions for Russia. Yeah. Without any reason whatsoever, any facts whatsoever, it just says Russia poses a, a threat to international peace. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. Um, and on the same day, I'm putting my tinfoil <sighs> conspiracy hat on here just to sort of bring the point home on the same day there's a massive terrorist attack in Gorzny, Chechnya. Now uh, I think the Harrison and the crew on yesterday's show discussed this briefly. I think Harrison was saying that well there have been some terrorist attacks in Chechnya over the years. Uh, Not really. There was a war in 2000. There was in the 90s and again in early 2000. But since 2004, it's been relatively stable. In fact, the city's been completely rebuilt. I think there was a suicide bomb or something earlier this year. Yes, there have have been some incursions, but it's the place is completely different from before. There's still a problem with uh, terrorists, the Caucasus Emirates or whatever they call themselves, causing trouble in Chechnya, but in the, in, the, in the longer game, these people, <clears throat> they're, of course, is bordering with Georgia. Uh, they're probably coming through from Georgia. And they're also going to be in Syria at the moment as well. Yeah, they're mercenaries paid by the U.S. Uh, yeah. and Ultimately. I, I'm, I'm not sure. I, the situation, I mean, it's over now. But at some point, they were trying to put out uh, there was, an, I think, I saw on, on BBC was trying to suggest that Grozny had been completely taken over by the terrorists. No, no, they were just, there was just, it was a terrorist act, but that's what they uh, terrorist attack. But it was, you know, that's what the US does. It spreads terrorism around the world. It finances people to its its proxies and its mercenaries to carry out terrorist attacks in the 
the countries in an effort to just kind of uh, keep pressure on them and destabilize them. And you know, as a terrorist haven, you know, to keep up that uh, appearance, uh, particularly in the West, of this part of the country being, other part of the world being uh, uh, subjected to terrorism or being a terrorist hotspot, et cetera, et cetera, because it, you know, keeps it on the back burner um, and prevents uh, normalization, essentially. To some extent, it prevents normalization of of uh, trade, etc., with that country and integration of that of that particular part of the world with the rest of the world. And you know, the U.S. is all about preventative integration, essentially, because it it survives and thrives on domination and control, and it can't have anybody, any countries around the world, effectively, really, um, uh, you know, doing business and getting on, um with each other, with its neighbors, etc., without the U.S. essentially being in control. You know, so anybody who isn't under the U.S.'s control comes under, comes under uh, the threat of terrorism. You know, and that's how they control it. Um, there was another interesting story from speaking about Russia and that part of the world, uh, Ukraine, you know, the Russian, the puppet regime in, um, in Ukraine, Poroshenko has... Uh, give uh, Ukrainian citizenship to three people uh, this la- this past week um, with, uh, with the aim of with the intent of giving them positions in power uh, the first person is um, p- positions in the government uh, high level positions in the government in the Ukrainian government the first is uh, a US citizen surprise surprise does that not bear out everything we've been saying about the nature of the ukrainian revolution and the change it's undergone over this past year uh, the first person a u.s citizen is natalie jaresko and she is going to run the ministry of finance she's essentially going to be the ukrainian economics uh minister she's going to run she's going to have her hands on the purse strings of uh, of ukraine's purse strings um she's also what isn't mentioned in most places is that she's a former State Department official. A U.S. State Department official is now in control of Ukraine's finances. I see. Uh, uh, so she'll direct uh, the funds that the IMF uh, arrange uh, to prop up the Ukrainian economy. Very subtle. <coughs> uh, she'll control the terms of those deals with the IMF, etc., all from the U.S., uh, you know, essentially from the U.S.'s uh, standpoint and uh, following its its lead or its directives. Uh, the second is a Lithuanian citizen. I'm not pronounce his name. Uh, maybe I will. It's Ivaras Abramovicus. Anyway, he's a Lithuanian citizen and he's now been given Ukrainian citizenship. He's a former top executive at a company called East Capital. Uh, and he addressed the Ukrainian parliament by saying, I'm from Europe. We will work together European style. <laughs> uh, so, so uh, he'll also be in the economics uh, ministry. Um, and then the last guy is, uh, you're talking about Georgia, he's a Georgian. And he'll be given Ukrainian citizenship. His name's Alexander Kvitashili. They're all called Chili or something. <laughs> Shills. They're all Shills in Georgia. He actually was a former. He's U.S. educated, and he was a former uh, government official under uh, Saakashvili, the former U- Ukrainian uh, or God, Georgian prime minister, who's now who was just such a pusillanimous little worm, uh, anti-Russian, like blindly, rabidly anti-Russian, and, and sucking up to the U.S. You know, mm. uh, he now he actually that former president 
of uh, our prime minister of uh, president, I think, of Georgia was is now he's got a, a tenured post in a, in a U.S. university because he's wanted back where, home where he spouts a lot of bullshit. Uh, but this guy who worked under him, uh, just to get you an idea, he um, he he was uh, in the health ministry in Georgia. And he's now going to be running the health and welfare ministry in um, in Ukraine, but in Georgia, under Saskatchewan, he um, he opened dozens of clinics and hospitals uh, several years ago, um, and he was getting all the equipment from U.S. companies, pharmaceutical companies, for to open open these hospitals. But it turned out that he was when he was supposedly opening all these hospitals in Georgia, he was simply he would open one hospital, have a, have a the media there in a press conference uh, with all the equipment and show all the equipment on the news and everything. And then he would take all the equipment, help people take all the equipment over to the next hospital that they'd built, which was empty, and use, and then film the same equipment in that. So he is basically, uh, the current Georgian government has an open criminal case on him for that kind of corruption and other kind of uh, uh, misdeeds, economic misdeeds. And so he's now going to be the public health ministry. He's going to head the public health ministry in Ukraine. Uh, he also studied under a Soros grant. Um, so ah. he will make Ukraine safe for Western American pharmaceutical companies. Um, and also the only other thing that uh, Porky, Porky Stinko or Poroshenko uh, did in terms of giving citizenship to people was he gave citizenship to all the foreign nationals who fought and are fighting in the Ukrainian military and the regulars and the irregulars, i.e. the mercenaries. Um, so all of those kind of, you know, Nazis or not Nazis or South Africans or wherever they came from, Bulls. they're all going to get Ukrainian citizenship if they want it so they can continue to, um, well, they can go undercover effectively. Cause yeah, Ukrainian it's hard to track them, find out who they were. Uh broader context of what's going on there in Ukraine. Uh, oh, first of all, a comment on this. This, <laughs> this is such a joke. I mean, how more obvious could it be that it's a technocratic government, a foreign-imposed government, than State Department Soros graduates are just literally plonking there. Uh, and by the way, they have been appointed. Uh, I, maybe I've got later news than you. They have been appointed, and the Ukrainian citizenship, citizenship formally came through on the day of their appointment. Yeah. Uh, some broader context. Biden went to Kiev a couple of weeks ago. Uh, apparently what he told Poroshenko was that he needed to form a new government within days, not weeks. What's going on is that Ukraine is basically... It, on the verge of default, and this is a desperate effort to stave it off. If it has a formal sovereign debt default, uh, yes, it it substantially comes under IMF. Um, what do they call it? It happened to Ireland and all the other countries. IMF temporary mm-hmm. ownership. The, a troika will basically run the country. But the reason they want to stave that off, I mean, you think, well, that that would be good. No, because a major contributor of the specific of the actual allocation of funds, a major creditor to Ukraine is Russia. So Russia will be on the board of directors of the temporary managing team of technocrats for Ukraine. So they're trying to avoid this at all costs. Form a new government and they've got their people in, I think, to secure whenever there are cabinet votes, 
they want to get enough people to make sure that every single thing the IMF prescribes is met. Uh, uh, yes, I think so. I think that's what's going on here because the IMF has been meeting furiously over Ukraine. Uh, we know this is a big issue for them because George Soros felt it important enough to actually write an article in Foreign Policy magazine in the U.S., so they cannot let Ukraine default. That's what they're trying to avoid. But it, it, the situation is beyond, it's just beyond a country actually defaulting. Ukraine is the worst performing economy by numbers. Okay, that's one thing. It's also in dire straits. They have a worse electricity power grid system right now than Gaza does. Okay, the energy ministry in Kiev has imposed limits on consumption between eight and eleven in the morning, and between four and the eight in the evening. Mm-hmm. Uh, the they're they're getting desperate. They imported uh, about fifty thousand tons of, of Russian coal, Russian coal uh, recently. So I mean, it's just it's just so obnoxiously obtuse what they're doing. You know, on the one hand, they're screaming all sorts of anti-Russian slogans and, you know, attacking Russia. At the same time, the re- reality on the ground is that these people need to to do business with Russia. They need to import things from Russia. They so will they- see off uh, several million useless eaters in Ukraine before they do business yeah. with Russia. That's the, uh, this is what structural adjustments mean. Yeah. Millions Shock people, therapy. Millions of people will die and yeah. it's all to the good type of thing. 2016, is Hillary going to be president? Oh, my God. God forbid. I think she might. What do we think about Hillary? She, she gave a statement recently. She's been pillaged from the right in the U.S. because she said, well, they took a quote from her and said she said in her speech to the university or somewhere that um, it's important to empathize with your, your enemies. Yeah. She was saying it in the context of the Philippines, mm. in which the enemy really was controlled opposition in the sense that mm. there wasn't really a threat to U.S. interest there. Mm. And she's being attacked from the right as being, you know, a pacifist. So she, she's putting on this glow of, dare I say, a mask of normalcy, I think, I think in preparation for being. I think she's saying that from the perspective of having multiple personality disorder. You know, I think... <laughs> Hillary sounds happy about What about it? that for a laugh? I mean, she's like the Wicked Witch of the West. She really should have been in the, in the Wizard of Oz, you know. She fits the profile perfectly. She's, she's demented. She's a demonic entity. And she, it, she'd be a perfect candidate for president to lead the American people, you know. I mean, because that's what... Uh, that's what... Not that they deserve that, but certainly that would be... Uh, uh, someone like Hillary would be representative of um, of the complete lack of responsibility that um, American people have taken towards their their own society and and themselves and their communities and, and allowed that kind of uh, psychopath psychopathy and uh, and the polarization of the society from the top down as a result of psychopaths in power. Uh, she would be perfect. I mean, she'd be a culmination of it because I mean the woman clearly is. Uh, extremely evil, if I can use that word. She's, if I was going to be more um, clinical about it, I would say that she clearly has some kind of a, uh, some kind of a personality disorder. Um, it may be multiple personality disorder, or it may just be something a bit more benign, but um, she's a 
I mean, there was there's that kind of a laugh where she was talking in an interview about uh, about potentially bombing Iran. That was what she was gleefully laughing about, and she's no stranger to gleefully laughing about uh, very serious matters. I mean, she was on camera um, laughing about the gleefully gloating and laughing about the the public murder of Muammar Gaddafi by U.S. mercenaries. Um, she she said, uh, we came, we saw he died, and then burst out laughing. Uh, and when the interviewer asked her, Do, did she think that his death, his murder had, uh, had anything to do with her arrival there, because she arrived there on the same day, I think, that it happened, or the day after. And she said, oh, no, no, no. But then she laughed and went, well, maybe. And then she laughed again. So she was essentially laughing at the possibility that there was a ritual murder, effectively, in her honor of of the the present, or not even the present, uh, the leader, let's yeah. say, of, uh, of of another country, you know? So she was just she was, laughing. She's so that. narcissistic that her initial reaction was that, oh, that reflects well on me. Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, so, oh yeah. Some, up by it. Someone, someone would have organized it that the, the, the public execution, videotaped public execution in a brutal fashion of another human being. In my honor, that's so sweet. Oh, those guys in CIA, they're such darlings that they would do that for me. And it's so fitting because I am an evil witch. Um, but, I mean, there's stuff about her that, um, I mean, in a general context of, uh, you see the stuff that Americans, American politicians say compared to stuff that uh, um, Putin, for example, says, you know, and the way that he says things. You would never hear, you never hear a Western politician speaking the way Putin speaks about certain things. First of all, he tells the truth about a lot of things and he's very moderate about a lot of things. He's very balanced, you know, and he um, talks sense and uh, explains things in a very plain, objective kind of way and in a way that ordinary people can relate to. He touches on on, on values and uh, that ordinary people have and that make sense and that are real for ordinary people, uh, whereas in the West, politicians are generally bellicose and uh, you know, up their own backsides, essentially, full of their own self-importance, and it's all kind of, uh, it tends to be kind of saber-rattling, and, and we're so great and we're so powerful, whereas Putin is coming from a, a more humanistic uh, point of view, and that speaks volumes about him, you know? Uh, mm-hmm. Because if he was in some way, you know, pathological, he wouldn't be able to bring himself to say that kind of stuff effectively, you know what I mean? Um he would. Uh, he certainly wouldn't be f- pursuing the policies that he's pursuing. He would have made a deal with the devil by now, you know. But the fact that he's not made a deal with the devil, that he's taken all this flack from uh, Western politicians, and that he's still uh, being reasoned uh, in his speech about the whole situation, and even uh, going to the extent of saying things like uh, talking about the meaning of life. Well, when would you ever hear a, a, a U.S. politician say that the meaning of our whole life and existence is love? and that it is the love of family and of children and of the motherland. I mean, maybe, I don't know, maybe we have heard uh, Western politicians say that, but um, when you put it in context of their actions, Mm -hmm. you know, it obviously uh, strikes a a very different note, you know, coming from from the two different uh, camps, you know. But just back on, on Hillary, you know, Hillary's got a very, a kind of a, there's a, there's a, I think there's a past that reveals an awful lot about her. Um, she used to be a, for a while, she was an attorney. And um, recently, earlier this year, there were 
audio recordings of an interview she gave to someone um, were discovered from the early 1980s when she was in her late 20s. And um, she was an attorney and she had been asked to defend a guy who had been accused of raping a 12-year-old girl uh, by some other lawyer who uh, asked her because the defendant, the man who raped the 12-year-old girl, I wanted a female uh, attorney for some reason. Uh, so she's she talks about this in these audio recordings, this case that she dealt with. And um, it kind of exposes her as, well, for me, it exposes her as a psychopath because she shows no concern whatsoever. I mean, she was defending this rapist and she admits that, um, that he, it was obvious that he did it. She gave him, a, uh, she ordered a polygraph test, a detector test for him and he failed it or he passed it. Mm. And she said that forever uh, made her forever lose her faith in the accuracy of polygraph tests because it was so obvious because there was evidence. I mean, the girl herself and two other uh, friends had said it was him and you know, there was no question that he was responsible, you know. And uh, and she says that the, the story of the case is that she, uh, they had his underpants that had blood on them and they sent them to the lab, the, the prosecution, I the other attorney sent them to the lab to get them tested and they cut out the piece that had the, the, the blood on them and um, to identify it and they identified it but then they threw that piece away and sent the underpants with a hole in it back to the evidence box. So all that was left as evidence was a pair of underpants without any incriminating evidence and Hillary went to the bother of going to some world-renowned uh, forensic uh, uh, forensic person a uh, forensic investigator or whatever and, and had him look at the ones with the, the underpants without the hole in them or, or, or with, the hole, with, the, with the piece of material missing that had no evidence on them and then get him to agree to testify that there was nothing on these that could indict this man because there's no evidence on them whatsoever. And then she presented that to the prosecution and said, listen, this is, the, uh, this is all you've got. Basically, I know this is all you've got and I've got this guy who's coming, willing to come from New York to testify and he's here's his credentials, and he'll say that there's no evidence linking this guy on these underpants to that to that crime. And she even said, you know, we don't want to involve ourselves in a miscarriage of justice here. She said all this knowing the guy was guilty. Yeah, and he had raped the twelve year old girl. Yeah, and she defended him, and she got him off. Basically, he got like the time served. He had spent two months in in, in prison. And she's just the way she you can listen to the other recording, just the way that she describes it all. I mean, the fact that she did it, and then she. You know, later on comes out with uh, with claims that she's uh, you know um, that she that she's all about uh, women's. She set up various charities for, or she supports various charity, charities for protection of women and all this kind of stuff. Um, it's just uh, you know, and other people have commented on on Hillary's uh, psychological state. You know. Um, I believe she even made a comment about the victim on that case. I don't know if you remember. Yes, well, she, she argued she argued that, that she had a history of, you know, making things up and lying yeah. about people and blah, blah. I mean, all knowing that the girl, a 12-year-old girl had been raped by this guy and she, she did everything she possibly could to to defame the girl's reputation and, and effectively manipulate evidence and hide evidence to uh, to get this guy off, you know. I mean, that's the kind of person she is. I mean, can you imagine yourself in that situation? Um, you know, um, the system is perfect for people like that too. Yeah, she says that, that she and she has the cojones to, or maybe she has the cojones to uh, 
to claim that the trial, that trial in particular, inspired her to co- to co-found the the first rape crisis hotline. You know, uh, so I mean, and there's a there's a there's a book um, written called "The Extreme Makeover of Hillary Clinton." Um, by a Republican strategist, uh, Bay Buchanan, he suggested that Clinton may have a disorder involving narcissistic personality disorder. Uh, and he said, we are talking about a clinical condition that could make her dangerously ill-suited to become president, commander-in-chief. Yeah, her and all the others, you know? Yeah. But, that's uh, a nice way of calling her a psychopath. He's being gentle on her. Yeah. <laughs> if it helps bring the point home that she shouldn't be in a position. It's too late. I mean, she has been in a position of power. And there's a who knows how much influence she held in Obama's administration. Yeah, and her biographist, uh, a girl called a woman called Gail Sheehy, uh, wrote a 1999 biography, uh, just called uh, I don't know what it was called, but a biography of Hillary Clinton. She, uh, in that book, among other things, said that empathy was not characteristic of Hillary. <laughs> Apparently not. No. And you know she's well known. Clinton's well known for uh, telling a big porcupine about uh, landing in um, Bosnia under sniper fire during the NATO bombing of uh, of Bosnia. She she I think she she was just uh, the first lady then. She landed in Bosnia and she claimed that um, when they landed, um, she says that we were there was supposed to be some kind of greeting ceremony at the airport, but instead we just ran with our heads down to get into vehicles to get to our base uh, because there was sniper fire all around and you know so she was in a war zone and stuff. And then, but after she had said that, the nightly news, uh, one of the news uh, stations showed what really happened. Uh, uh, <laughs> she she had no helmet or flak jacket or anything. She was just in a long black coat and she walked about 50, 50 feet uh, to an eight-year-old girl who was standing on the on the, on the runway, gave her something, and then um, she just went into a building. So it didn't happen at all. And she just made up. A, I mean, you can imagine how much else she has made up over the past, you know, 10, 15 years or, or longer, you know. Um, but yeah, that's Hillary Clinton, you know, because uh, the reason um, Tim or our sound man Tim uh, sent me a, a video, a, a song, a YouTube video of, um, uh, what's it called? Hillary, uh, I don't know what it's called, Yay for Hillary or something or Time for Hillary or whatever it is. And it's this country song by this guy with the stats and stuff and he's singing and playing and it's it's, it's a slow kind of country air and it's all about... It basically glorifies Hillary Clinton and it's time for Hillary and Hillary in 2016 and blah, blah, blah. And it's just so sickening. You know, it's so bad that it's almost like a, you'd think it's a parody. Yeah. you think they're going to come out with something that ridicules her. Yeah. But apparently it's genuine. And, uh, yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing, you know. Well, in a way, he's right. It is time for Hillary. The U.S. has reached a point where yeah. and completely insane leader, mind you, Bush was insane, but even let's say someone even more pathological uh, would be the one to usher in the eschaton. <laughs> I mean, that, nothing else could happen with a complete psychopath. Yeah. And if you're thinking that it can't be because she's a woman, well, there's research um, made by psychologists who actually tell you and show you why and how women, psych- uh, psychopathic women, can be far more dangerous than um, than men. In fact, we had Sandra Brown, one an expert on psychopathy, and when when she was asked the question, she said, "You know, I would much rather be in a room 
alone with a psychopath male than with a woman. Yeah. So. Yeah. Wow. So there you go. There's something to think about and take home. We're about ready to wrap things up. I'd just like to briefly comment on another story. Hang in there. Make it brief. Make it brief. Okay, so since uh, about six weeks, drones have been appearing over nuclear sites in France. Um, in spurts, you know, bursts of activity would be several sites, several nuclear power stations, which Joe mentioned France is a lot because it's fully energy independent France, which is rare for a country other than the United States. And they've been appearing and hovering over... The US isn't energy independent, what are you talking about? It's not? No. The US has to import uh, almost half of its oil. That's why it's so worked up about the Middle East. Oh. The US produces about 10 million barrels of oil a day, but it consumes about 18 million barrels of oil a day. So, it has about a so why are they all going home about exporting LNG? Shale gas. Well, because they have it and they want to get, want to get rid of it. But uh, but well, because they have the rest of the whole world sewn up, basically. You know, they can oh, get right. I was assuming a rational solution. I was assuming when I heard that they have all this LNG to export, that may be, because they have no need for it themselves. No, they, they may they may be predicting that they have enough to cover their own needs plus uh, export some more. But that's all in the future. Like as Joe said earlier on, they're talking about twenty twenty and stuff. But uh, no, in terms of oil, they're that's. Okay, so but the US of course, is doubly screwed. Okay, yeah, go on. No, I was just going to say that's uh, an exa- the fact that they consume 18 million uh, barrels of oil a day, um, or is it billion? No, it must be million. <laughs> anyway, um, that's by far the most. If you look at the stats, the next one way down low is like Japan. I don't know the next biggest country. It's not even any of the. Maybe it's China. Maybe the next one, but it's like China's way down at like you know, five or six or something like that. And then everybody else is in the low single digits, you know. Uh, but the U.S. 18 billion, 18 million barrels of oil today, you know. Anyway, carry on. So it began in waves uh, mid-October, I think, and then again in November. And the French government is obviously like, okay, what's going on? Because they have no clue who's doing it. They arrested some kids, some students or something, Um I think they were released because they're still investigating, they're still happening. There was another wave of this uh, about last week or two weeks ago. And we're talking here about basically like those quadrocopter helicopter drones that just fly around or buzz or in some way enter the airspace above nuclear power stations, which is protected airspace in France. And they have no clue what's going on. And these aren't the ones you buy on Amazon, obviously. These are No, let me just read a couple of things. Uh, <clears throat> French police have said these are efficient and high-speed helicopters. Actual hel- police helicopters have given chase to follow the drones but couldn't keep up with them. Mm-hmm. These are some high-tech stuff that can, they might be tiny, but they can travel at the speed of aircraft, essentially. Um a recent spate of five coordinated visits in one evening to nuclear reactors hundreds of miles apart had put the government on high alert. They're mostly in the north, Normandy, the border with Germany, but they're, they're convinced that they're looking at elaborate and advanced planning. Just furthermore, that whatever tech it is, it's not stuff you can buy like on Amazon and direct with a smartphone. No. It's high-tech military-grade stuff. Mm-hmm. So who spies on everybody all the time? 
is the question. And who wants to keep people in line in Europe? And who wants to send a subtle message to the French government to keep them on edge that we're watching you and, you know, we know where your nuclear power plants are, nuclear power plants, etc. And so, who, for the first time since the Ukraine crisis, Kiev coup, visited Putin, the first and only Western leader to do so, mm-hmm. leader of France yesterday, President Hollande, made an unexpected stop at Moscow's airport where he met Putin on his way to Kazakhstan. I think that's just, um, could be significant because that yep. no one has gone near Russia because there's clearly a, a memo went out, you know. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Anyway, we'll leave it there for this week, folks. Uh, thanks to our listeners and to our caller, Kent, and to our chatters. Hope you all had fun. Uh, we'll be back next week with another show. Until then, have a good one. Bye-bye. Bye.